0: we're continuing our we're continuing our sermon series as we go through the word of the lord grows this week we are diving into the letter to the philippians that paul wrote and while every single letter i think that paul writes usually has some greeting what's very special about philippians is that the heart of paul and his love for this particular congregation is clearly on display when he begins this letter. And it's more than just like a, I kind of like you guys and some words to encourage them. But as we read, we, we can't help but see and feel this deep desire, this love, this pouring out of his entire heart to these people whom he just completely loves and is so pleased with. And we just did this in Teaching Church, which by the way, if you haven't yet ever come to Teaching Church, it happens in between the services, it's like 940 to 1025, it's just in the, um, the music room, that parlor area, um, and we dive a little bit deeper into the text, but we looked at this letter that Paul writes in this beginning, and we wrote letters to loved ones using these words, because they're just so powerful, and I want to Read them to you because you'll see this, this beautiful pattern that Paul points to, which is that it's okay to rejoice over someone, that it's okay to express to someone your love for them. And it's especially good to let them know that you are praying for them. So this is the beginning of Philippians chapter one. And I think you can see why joy is such a dominant theme in this letter. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's what it means to be part of a church, to partner in the spread of the gospel, to rejoice over people, to be in relationship with others and to experience the joy that comes from a community of believers as together for the glory and praise of God we work And the letter continues in chapter one because he's writing from jail, so he's got a little bit of free time. And he's writing to let them know that he is okay. He's writing to let them know that their friend Epaphroditus, who they sent from their own congregation to bring him supplies and meet his needs to comfort him, arrived. And even though he got sick, he's better now. He writes that the gospel has got to continue to still be preached by you, even though you are being persecuted, even though I am now in chains. He writes that he has courage Because he knows that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Meaning that while it might be better for him personally to die because then he gets to go with heaven and be with Jesus, it's better for him to live so that together they continue to be a blessing, teaching and encouraging one another in the faith. He writes while in jail and suffering through all of this, stating that his joy, the joy that he has in Christ Jesus and in who they are, can never be taken away. And you can just picture him writing this. He's speaking from his heart. I bet he's got that like thing where you do when you you got a little bit of tears because you're just thinking about how much you love them as you're writing. But then he like takes that deep breath and then switches it and moves into, I don't think serious is the right word, but maybe strong and says now with all that, live this life that you have been given. Live a life worthy of the gospel that you've received. And he closes that chapter out saying, I know you are being persecuted. I know things are going to be very, very tough. But on the outside, don't let that affect you. Instead, be changed on the inside in your relationship to one another. And in chapter two, our text for today, he tells them and us how to act against the internal conflicts that arise when you are in community. He's gonna show us how we are to get along with one another because each one of us is different. Each one of us comes from different backgrounds and different statuses, was raised in a different way and in a different household. But there is a way that people who follow Jesus must become. And so he's going to mention five pieces here to start with. And if you've got your, your bulletin, that's what we're looking at today. This is chapter 2. And I'm starting at verse 1 as we dive in and start to look at these. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And I love that right away, Paul is very subtly taking the focus off of ourselves and is putting it into what Jesus has done for you and then applying it to your relationship one with another. Paul's asking these rhetorical questions here, is with that, if you have any. And what's really unique is that there's a process here. He's being rhetorical because he knows you have these things, but it starts with what you've received. We have been united with Christ. If you have been baptized, you know that Romans 6 is usually spoken and read because we have been united in Christ to his death, and not only to his death, but also to his resurrection and that newness of life that comes. The text says if you have any encouragement from being united, that translated there as encouragement, it's like our modern way of saying consolation. And I think consolation may be a better way as I talk about it moving forward, because sometimes when we translate, because remember, every time we are reading a English translation, whether it's NIV or ESV, NRSV, those are the only three that you guys know? Cool, me too. (laughs) Moving on. Someone has taken the original Greek and is translating and trying to capture what it was trying to say. But I think they should have used the word consolation here because it ties us in to other verses used in the Bible that use that same word. In fact, there's one in Luke chapter 2, verses 25, when Simeon is being kept alive before he blesses baby Jesus because he is waiting to see with his own eyes the consolation of Israel. It's a name given to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also the consolation that we have in Christ abounds as well. He says it again in Thessalonians, where he says, God has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and hope through his grace. See, the idea here. The very first thing that you have received is more than just soothing sympathy to cheer you up through the persecution because you've been united to Christ. He is telling you that you have received strength, that you are being made strong through through being united in Christ. You receive that strength. You are not a lost and hopeless nation like Israel was until Jesus came. You are not someone who is left on their own to their own sufferings because you have received something in Jesus grace and everlasting hope. Yes, for the life to come when you are in heaven, but also for the life now. And this is not unique. Or special to you alone, but rather is given to every single person who calls on the name of Jesus. You and those sitting next to you have been united to Christ. You have been saved and made strong. And then look what it moves to. Not only are you strong through that unification that you have with Jesus, but also you are loved and comforted, comforted and nurtured by the love of the one who created everything. And again, this comfort comes from that Latin word with fortis meaning strength. This is a love that gives you more than just happy thoughts. But a love that forms you and a love that has given you the right to be called a child of God, which moves you into that common sharing in the Spirit, which places you in a family, in a community where we share things in common, where we are filled by the same Holy Spirit that guides and moves in our lives in that powerful, precious way, each one of us. And through all of this ongoing relationship, God is choosing to raise us not in anger, Not in guilt, but with compassion and tenderness. Slow to anger, abounding in love. By God himself becoming the rock, the fortress, the deliverer. By being the one who is your warrior, who fights for you. And more than that, looks and sings over you in joy like a mother sings over her child. See, Paul does this wonderful thing by asking in this rhetorical way, if you have these things, not because he's being sarcastic, because it is so obvious and known to those who have the Lord what they have received. If you go home today and you forget that you are united in Christ, that's not okay. Every day you get to look at yourself when you make that sign of the cross, which means you have been united to Christ, you are loved by Christ, the spirit of the living God dwells in you, and you are going to be treated with compassion and tenderness and mercy. That is not wishful thinking, that is the facts, the promise made by God to each one of us, that we are united to his son Jesus, loved deeply deeply. He himself dwells and makes his home in you, giving you the strength that you need as he guides you in all compassion and tenderness and mercy. These are the direct spiritual gifts that you have been given through Jesus. And Paul says you are given these not just for your own comfort, not just for your own strength and knowledge, but so that you will share them with each other. See, these people are being persecuted by the outside world. And yes, they've been given strength from God, but we also find strength from one another because we are not alone. Paul says, make my joy complete and be one. Do not think this is just you and Jesus, but it is you and Jesus and the family that he has given you. Make my joy complete and be one. Have the same mindset, the same deep abiding unity that must be if we're going to make it together. We're called to be something more because of what we have received. And we are reminded that we are never separated from God. We are not just close to God or known by God. We are united, chosen, so that when you look around in these seats today, And before we give back to God through our offering, you will shake the hands and say hello to someone who is not your competition, who is not your enemy, who may be different than you, who may have been raised in a different household, who may come from a different socioeconomic status or have a different skin color or a larger nose like I got. doesn't matter. God has united himself to the person sitting next to you and has united himself to you. And now unity is what we strive for. The apostle who writes from his heart wants to see us as one. And I wonder sometimes. Does the outside world, when they see us followers of Jesus that we are, do they see oneness? Do they see oneness from the way that we love and speak and live amongst ourselves? How powerful will it be when we unite ourselves to each other? How powerful it is just for yourself when in your mind, the ways you want to eat and exercise and be healthy and save and all that stuff, when it becomes routine and aligns with yourself, think about your relationship with your spouse. How amazing it is when you two are on the same page raising these children, and how hard it comes when there is division, splits, separation, when there is a refusal to give, a refusal to admit fault. There can't be unity when we live that way. So Paul keeps going and says this in the next verses. Three steps. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition is the first step to, a, to unity. In the flesh, we are motivated by selfish ambition. Much of what we do is not done out of love for others, but out of advancement or promotion for ourselves. When I grew up, I played a lot of risk. Anybody play risk? I grew up with a guy, I won't say his name because he's sitting right there, and he would always give me advice. You want to conquer the world, this is what you got to do. Do you know what? That advice always benefited him but he has been forgiven and he is loved. (laughs) Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. There's good ambition. There's good ambition to glorify God with, to serve him with everything we have. It's okay to want good for yourself, but how do we recognize the difference between selfish ambition and good and God-pleasing ambition? Maybe we wanna ask that question, but I think the answer is a little bit easier then we pretend because when we examine our motives we know we know in our hearts when we are using people we know in our hearts when we are trying to manipulate we know in our hearts when we are attempting to gain something from someone else but i think it's harder to know when that thing we want that position, that money to be a kind of person, have a kind of life, a kind of look, when that becomes more than the ambition to please God, that becomes hard to identify. So if your conscience is not making you aware to the truth, the advice that I would give you to see what does God's word say about this. Because selfish ambition always goes against the way of God. Selfish ambition has a way of changing the priorities that God wants for your life. And throughout this letter, Paul will challenge the ones he loves to reflect and think about their motives. To remember who Christ is and what Christ did, and to live that way. That's why he says, Let nothing be done through conceit, because conceit is thinking too highly of oneself, having an excessive self interest and self preoccupation. The dictionary definition of conceit is an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability and importance. When we live, with the feeling that we are so important, that we are so able, so talented, all on our own. We are outside of what God has declared for us. We are working then against unity and promoting self above above all others. And how do we know when that's different? How do we know when we're having a healthy view of ourselves, that we're made in the image of God, that we're loved, that we're forgiven, that we are unique and created in a specific way versus we are the best. Ask yourself the question. What am I using to define as my worth in this life? What God has said about me? Or what others and what I have accomplished? Or what has been done to me? Where is my joy in following and getting closer to God? Or pursuing a life for myself of ease? What am I thankful for? Being known by God and having God give me gifts? Or thankful for all the things that I myself have done? Where is my boasting? Is it in myself and the things that I have? Or is it in what God has done for me? When you ask yourselves those questions, you fight against selfish ambition and conceit. And the next step is in humility to value others above yourself. This is completely contradictory to the attitude of the world at Paul's time and surprisingly the same as ours. Because humility or maybe lowliness is about the least attractive thing to the thinking of this world. In fact, the ancient Greeks considered it to be a fault. Humility and thinking lowly of yourself is not a virtue. The secular idea at the time was to impose your will. If you are powerful, get more powerful. If you are wealthy, gather more wealth. If you can do this for yourself, then take action and do it. But to put yourself beneath someone to serve someone, to look at someone, to have the same value as you, was unheard of until a man came along and began saying that there is a kingdom of God and a different way of living, and would rebuke the culture's concept of self-esteem. You can scour the Bible, but you will not find that we need to carry within ourselves an attitude of superiority. You can scour the Bible, but you will not find that the way to be healthy is to think that you are the strongest, best, and greatest thing that God ever made. You can scour the Bible and think that if you are blessed and have a lot of stuff, then God certainly loves you, and you will be misled. Because the father loved the son the most and has given everything to him. And the son had persecution and death. So when we look not for our own interests, but for the interests of others, when we see that things are getting real bad and stop building our own bunker, but instead ask, how can I help? Then this thinking that Paul is talking about becomes complete. We put away our selfish ambitions, our conceit, our tendencies to be self-absorbed and instead begin to look to the needs of others. This isn't saying that it's wrong to look out for yourself, that you need to beat your body and starve yourself. It's saying that you shouldn't only look out for you. So I'm going to stop for just a moment because we may not be aware that these things that are written, these words of God, these things that are sharper than a double-edged sword, these words that somehow penetrate into the marrow, the very fiber of our being, we sometimes forget that these words are dangerous and that there is power in them that they can bring about change and transformation. These weren't written so that you will be a morally good person. These things are written so that you would have a life and believe in the name of Jesus. But to have life, you have to die to yourself. And these words war against your sinful nature. These words war against the teachings of this world. This world that we live in and immerse ourselves in these words given by God himself. Have a purpose to destroy that sinful self and to let the real self live. These words are for the reborn to learn how they will walk moving forward. So, when you spend time in God's Word, beware that change will happen. That something will be broken in your heart. And that God is working in there. Paul tells you all of this not because God wants it for you, which he does. Paul tells you all of this, not because you have to do this because of what God has done, which you kind of should. Paul tells you this because this is who your Jesus, the one that you praise, the one that you prayed to, the one that you follow did. Look at this verse. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Everything that we have talked about, learn to surrender and die to yourself so that the word of God enters your heart and you can be changed because this is what Jesus came to do. And this is what it says. Jesus, in verse six, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Your Jesus, who was there in the beginning, who created this planet. This life that you live, whose blood set you free, this Jesus humbled himself and stepped down into your earth in the form of a man, chose to be born into an obscure, oppressed place, into poverty among a despised people, born a child instead of coming down as an angel, humbled himself to the obedience appropriate to a child in a household. Humbled himself and waited till the time that God ordained for him to begin his ministry. Humbled himself through those he chose and surrounded himself with. Humbled himself to the way that he taught. Humbled himself to touch the untouchable, to see the broken and to seek the lost. Humbled himself through weakness and hunger and thirst and tiredness, humbled himself in complete obedience to the Father to endure shame, mocking, and crucifixion, the most humiliating of all deaths. Not just a horrible way to die, the most humiliating way. Because in tenderness and compassion, your Jesus went to the cross for you to stand in the place of sinners, to mark himself as one of us, even though he was without sin, went so that we would not be alone, but could share in that spirit, could be united to him, would know we are loved by him. And as the band makes their way back up, know that therefore God exalted himself to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's not giving you some description of Jesus for a theological education and knowledge of who Jesus is and some pretty words about him. He's giving them to you so that you are equipped to handle what is coming and what you are going to be experiencing. He's giving them to you so that you will practice the unity and have the mindset of we are in this together and we are not alone. This picture of Jesus helps us to understand that Paul was doing what he was supposed to do when bad things were happening to him. But his joy was never taken away and neither will yours, no matter what is being thrown at you right now. Paul's faith didn't change whether he was locked or standing next to the ones he loved because the grace of God isn't affected by the good or bad in your life. It is steadfast. And the power that you have received, the strength that you have received from Christ Jesus allows you to do what you do not think that what is possible. And that is to simply stand. To stand in the midst of all the things that are happening in your life, to raise your hands and say hallelujah to God be praised. You are God and I am not. In the midst of all of this, you have not stopped being my God. I surrender everything that is holding me back and I give you all of me. I am yours. Do with me what you will because I trust you. That is the reason these things are written so that you would know, so that you would become changed, so that you would spend time thinking and praising God and learning. This is who you are now. Reborn, made new. My child, my own. Amen.